the orders of preachers is what you said. It's actually just one order. Oh. Yeah, it's okay. We've never split up 801, 802 years. We're just proud of that. You know, we're not calling you up. We're correcting you. And then second is that I wanted to just talk about the origin of my invitation. I've never been invited to give a theology on tap. Until one fateful evening on December 26th in Steubenville, Ohio, in the blustery, cold, snowy weather, Brendan and myself both found ourselves at Applebee's. It was a group thing. It was a happy hour. It was later, actually. And uh, it was at Applebee's. You said, hey, why don't you come give theology on tap? I said, all right. Anything goes, you know? So we're here today. Drinks in, you know, you're I was drinks. drinking water that night. I was waking up for an early flight. 5 a.m. That's true. I'm a fan. Um, sorry. I miss me. Oh, you. <laughs> we're gonna, can, can I, we're going to go with the talk now. Okay. Fun story to begin. My cousin Joe Danaher goes to St. Peter's on Capitol Hill and is coming into the Catholic Church this Easter. He asked me to be his sponsor and he said, hey, I want to kind of... Um, get to know what your parish is like, too, where you work at Shrine of the Sacred Heart in Columbia Heights. And so I said, yeah, Joe, come on down. So he came. Um, this was last year. It was a feast of Our Lady of, as they say, Nuestra Señora de Alta Gracia, the Most High Grace, and it's the devotion to Our Lady of the people of the Dominican Republic. And so one of the devotions is that because Our Lady appeared over a grove of orange trees in the Dominican Republic, they carry in the beginning of the Mass baskets of oranges, lemons, women in colored dresses. We got some rowdy music going on. So my cousin goes to St. Peter's in Capitol Hill is thinking, huh, this is a little bit different, you know? Yeah, Joe, it's a little bit different, you know? And the best moment that whole time happened where we're going through the Mass, I'm explaining them what's going on, I'm, I'm translating for them on the fly, I'm sitting in the pew. And we were going up in communion line for me to receive and for him to receive a blessing. And he whispers to me, he goes, why is there a cat in the sanctuary? I said, what are you talking about? And I looked behind it, and lo and behold, right behind the priest, there was a cat on the mountain of oranges, right behind the priest giving communion with these two altar servers trying to corner the cat. And there was like this tango going on. And I basically was trying to take it in. Now, Clara, the cat, was purchased along with Francisco, because it's a Franciscan parish, to eat the rats and mice in the basement outside. And they actually do a very good job. But she had smelled the oranges, found her way up a back stairwell, and then had come up from the basement and was trying to get an orange. And my only response to Joe at the time was, um, let's talk about it later, okay? Just put this one off, you know? But that, that is very much a parish. I mean, it's a place where... If there's reverence and there is a lot of praise and adoration, all kinds of things, and devotion, and yet it's a place where there's a certain comfortability where you can have a cat in the sanctuary and it's like, all right, you know, cat needs to get out, but uh, let's keep going with the mass, you know? Just a little intro story. We're going to have fun tonight. I want to introduce tonight's uh, title. It's called Understanding Pope Francis as a Latino. A few words of introduction. I am a gringo. Why am I talking about Pope <laughs> as a Latino? So I want to be humble and respectful in every way. Um, it is true that not only have I worked for the last four years in Latino ministry, but also visited various countries and 
Latinos have an amazing way in, in all the differences they have among themselves to really show hospitality and to want to teach you who they are in their specific customs. So as much as I've been even vaguely involved in Latino ministry in life, it's been a continual education. So it's not like I've been saying, yeah, sure, that's fine. I mean, there's a lot of intake here. I'm trying to pass some of that on. Second, Latino is a generalized term, and it's a little bit unfair, so we have to say that from the start, because it is true that there are major differences between, let's take some huge experience, between Mexico and Chile. Right? There are enormous cultural differences, and yet at the same time, there are not only among the spoken languages, uh, the spoken language, but especially in the church and the style of Catholicism, there really is what is a, a Latino culture, with differences, but there's a real culture that does unite um, this 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 um, part of our of our world. Second, Pope Francis is from Italian parents. So you think, well, is he really that Latino? He's from Italian parents, and it's the same answer is that he he was you know he spent his entire life in Argentina and especially in that church. I mean, getting all his formation from the Argentinian Jesuits and growing up as well, just step by step. He's a huge devotion to Teresa Blasu. I mean, some things are universal, and some things too are very particular. So I'm going to talk about that. I want to um, just say off the bat that I think Pope Francis is something that the rest of the world is not used to. Not his specific personality, but just the mere fact that historically speaking, I cannot, and I would love to be corrected on this, that's not a challenge, I actually would love to be corrected, I cannot think of another person from all of Latin America who has been made then a world leader on the world stage, especially seated in Europe, especially speaking, I, I don't know of another example. I mean, this is really, we forget, we look at his individual personality, and he's the first person in that corner of the globe to occupy that position, world leadership. And I think we're all kind of wondering, whoa, you know, there's some things that kind of confuse us, or what's this and that. Well, some, of, some of it, not all of it, some of it's both friends, but some of it is understanding the culture which he comes from. And lastly, I would say, you know, this is a man who was elected Pope in his mid-70s. I mean, I'm 30 years old. I've been deeply enculturated by my own culture in the United States. And there are different cultures in the United States. But even so, at 30 years old, I already feel like, yeah, I'm pretty well shaped by this. Imagine you're 76 years old, and all of a sudden they say, hey, pick up your bags, move your arm, you have a brand new job, you're responsible for the Catholic Church. Holy cow, really? I mean, there's going to be some cultural stuff there, right? I mean, he's not going to say, well, now I'm going to be a new man. It's like, well, I mean, they do say, actually, that Francis was very, was kind of heavier and more serious when he was Cardinal of Buenos Aires. They say he kind of has a new lightness to him. Um, and we'll go into that some. So my main points, I want to talk about three things, and these are not a big conclusion. These are three things. It's not to say that uh, Pope Francis, I can't understand him at all. It's not to say Pope Francis is, is a living saint, and I've figured him out, I know everything about him, I'm going to just explain everything. It's sick. These are three cultural things that I've picked up and that helped me get him a little more. You know, leave it at that. And those three things are a bit of a ramble. This is not perfectly put together. I'm sorry it's not a structured academic conference. It's going to be fun. Get ready. We're about to go. Three things are these. Complexity. Honesty. And family. I'm going to talk about those three things. First, complexity. I was at a different parish in China, the Sacred Heart. This is in D.C. three years ago. Not that parish. I was at a young adult group. And I wondered, starting to go to Spanish Mass, I said, gosh, a lot of people don't go to communion, but they all come to Mass still. And I asked three different priests, and I asked some other friends of mine, because I have a friend who's, who's Nicaraguan, and I asked 
and other friends from Columbia because I spent the summer there and I have Mexican friends that I asked them. And then I asked this, this youth group, which is all full of Salvadorians, because DC has a, like, one of the largest Salvadorian communities in the United States. And in a single young adult session, I said, why, why, like sensitivity, with all sensitivity, why do you think culturally people don't always go to communion? And I got an answer of, they weren't catechized, so they didn't have the education. Some people have only received their first communion. But then some people said, no, it's actually that there are a lot of people who are very old world and they, they have a devotion that says, unless you go to confession right before, you won't receive communion. And others said actually it's because because of immigration there were some civil and civil marriage issues. So because of their marriage status, they don't put in words. Others say actually it's because they know the church teacher and missing a Sunday or using contraception or other things, and so they're very sensitive to church teaching, but they can't always make a confession. They don't go to communion. And there were like seven reasons given, and a part of me is driving away thinking, so which one is it? You know, it's like why 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 that. And then I was driving home thinking, maybe that's more honest. Maybe it's more honest to say, instead of saying, well, there's one main reason why people kind of respectfully, in a holy way, refrain from communion sometimes. Um, and maybe those reasons are really seven or eight different things. Maybe there's a lot going on. Maybe that's actually a, a sensitivity which says, there's a lot going on and, and there's a lot of reasons. I said, yeah, maybe that's more honest. There's a complexity there that was respected. I also, when I was spending a summer in Colombia three years ago in Bogota, um, I was improving my Spanish and doing an immersion program, and I asked some of the oldest priests. These guys were Thomists, just like us Dominicans here in D.C., and they read all the Summa, and they were these old school guys. I said, to better myself in your language, what are your spiritual classics? What are the classics of Colombia? That they have their spiritual office. I'm going to read in the original. And um, I was told, uh, I mean, by every single one of these men, they said, oh, you need to look up the, the, the document from the Bishop's Conference in Rio de Janeiro, the Bishop's Conference in Medellin, Colombia, the Bishop's Conference in Puebla, in Mexico, Santo Domingo, the Bishop's Conference from Aparecida, which is the most recent one. And then I went to these Bishop's Conference documents. And they're incredibly diverse and complex. It's basically a conversation that takes place among bishops from all different countries about everything that's different, what's happening in the lowest levels of society, what's happening in their seminaries, what's happening everywhere. And there's no editing involved, basically. You take the conversation, you write it down, and you publish it. And people read this as spiritual classics. It's like, wow, I'm not used to that, you know? Francis is very attentive. If you follow any of his writings, he's very attentive that he has read these documents very closely. And, 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 and that, that's actually the point. From my cultural upbringing, I'm thinking, well, what's the point? You know, give me three takeaways. And actually, this is actually a very Jewish thing originally as well. So the Jewish people, they prefer four Gospels to one, okay? In the 3rd and 4th century, we had a Greek come along in the early church named Tatian. And Tatian came along and he put together a thing called the Diatessaron. What is the Diatessaron? He basically means through the four. He said, why do we have four Gospels? Let's combine these babies, let's put them into one, and then we have one story of Jesus, because that's better, right? Well, to the, to the Hebrew mind, no, it's not better. I had it explained to me where... If you want to get the beauty of a mountain and to really appreciate it, it's better to walk around the mountain from all sides to take it in. You know, if you want to, if you fall in love with someone, you fall in love as you see them from in different settings, dressed differently, different days, different moods, different angles. Um, it's preferable to certain cultures to say complexity is preferred here, 
We don't want to boil it down to one or two points. It's, the beauty is in the richness of a diverse conversation that touches many points. All I'm saying is that there's a comfortability there. The main point being, well, I'll give you one more example. I have been taught Humanae Vitae, published by Paul VI, which had said that contraception the church can't accept. Paul VI let that document sit on his desk for an entire year after the commission met about it. An entire year of patience. When I was taught Humanae Vitae, in three different classes at three different schools, I was taught basically paragraph 14. Paragraph 14, Paul VI says, the church says officially here this is not acceptable. Well, later I went on to give a class at my parish now, and I was reading through Humanae Vitae. There was so much more in that document. You skip ahead to chapter 17. There's this amazing passage in 17 where Paul VI is basically saying one of the main reasons we can't accept this is that it especially leads the man towards a disrespect of the woman, almost inevitably. And there's this beautiful treatment of this, but we lose something in boiling it down. Here's the Pope wrote a document. Here's what he said. Here's a sentence. Case closed. There's a beauty in that because we have a clear definition. We've had popes that have given us those, and those definitions haven't gone away. This is something very different, though, a very different style, which is let's have a conversation that touches on a lot of areas, and, and then and then what? It's like, what do you mean then what? That's it. It's beautiful. Let's do it again next year. Let's have another synod on something else, you know, because it's, because it, it it helps you to develop something. Uh, I was just talking to a girl, too. I have a friend who's from Argentina, Diana Cumbre, and Diana told me um, we knew each other because one of her best friends married one of my childhood friends in Ohio. And she said that as cardinal in Argentina, Francis was very well known for two things right when he became cardinal, is that he railed against uh, the government at that time that was considering the approval of same-sex marriage. And he also railed, he was the first bishop of Buenos Aires ever to publicly denounce the abuse crisis in the church among the clerics. I mean, it's not, well, one or the other, are, 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 are you, you know, are you hurting the church or are you, you know, going against the government? He's like, you know, I'm trying to say what I think is true and I don't, I'm not, you know, both. I, was, I just read the same thing in a book by Charles Chaput, who's the Archbishop of Philadelphia, is this great little book on a Catholic view of politics called Render Unto Caesar. And he gives the example of two bishops, um, Archbishop Rummel of New Orleans, way back towards the turn of the century, and Archbishop Rummel, well before the 1950s civil rights movement, desegregated all Catholic properties, schools and parishes, etc., in the Diocese of New Orleans. And he was praised, he was praised by the New York Times, which which was very liberal then, as it's liberal now. And then, in the early 2000s, the New York Times reamed um, Cardinal from St. Louis. He was from St. Louis, Order of Malta now. Help me on here, Burke, Cardinal Burke. Because he had confronted some politicians um, on their pro-life views. You know, and Shapu's point is basically saying both of these men as Catholics were acting honestly because guess what, guess what they weren't looking? They weren't looking to the New York Times for approval in Rommel's case or disapproval. They were simply doing what they felt to be true. And I think that's especially true about Francis that there's a complexity, and we're going to talk more about this too when it comes to honesty. There's a complexity with dissension of different people in the church. There's complexity within each country. And then sometimes you voice the complexity and sometimes you voice it. Now, moving on though, because that's not the only point. Point two is honesty. 
Um, there is a certain honesty that I think is particularly Latino and particularly refreshing, and particularly Argentinian. Argentinians are known especially for the way they call La Polemica, like polemics. Like, there's even like a famous 90s TV show, La Polemica en el Bar, like polemics in a bar. You know, and it's like, it's basically this show where like, people argue openly and honestly, and it's refreshing and interesting. That was the main TV show for a while. I mean, there's a comfortability with speaking really directly sometimes and being like, okay. You're honest, I'm honest, we're honest, you know. That's not everything, that's particular Argentinian, but it has certain reverberations elsewhere. But I love, too, the difference between the Spanish and English languages, is that English is more directional. English is more, let's, let's hang out, you know. I think I'm going to go lie down. I, let, 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 let's go out tonight, you know. Whereas in Spanish, it's just like, vamos a salir, salimos. Or it's reflexive to say, like, I'm going to lie down means me acuesto. It's like, it's reflexive of oneself, myself, you know. Or to say, you know, I think, I remember, all these things. It's less outside directional objective. And there's a stronger sensitivity towards what's going on with me right now. That matters. Now, we all have that. I'm not saying it's exclusive. But even in the language, it's saying that, a lot of times, there's this reflexiveness. We even have this, just a quick example from our parish. We have this amazing program in our parish in Sacred Heart called Movimiento Familiar de Cristiano Católicos. It's the family movement of Catholic Christians. We try this because it's bilingual. It's brought up by priests in Spain. Bilingual Spanish and English. It's this amazing program where priests will get together with certain couples, couples that want to work on their marriages because they're not having amazing marriages. Or, if they're good enough, they want help. In these really open dialogues with each other, and there's vulnerability there to share about this is you know, theoretical. Me and my wife sitting there in front of these priests, and we're going to share with other couples what we're going through. And it has taken off and flourished in a beautiful way that it's spread to the parish of San Andres, just north of Maryland. I mean, it's spreading all over. We have this group where then those couples go and form other couples. There are so many couples from broken relationships that are coming back into the church by this movement by just simply sitting around. And talking together, how's your marriage been? There's guiding questions. We tried that also with the English-speaking community twice, and it totally flopped. <laughs> because there's not quite the openness to say, I'm not going to talk about my marriage problems in front of other couples. You know, there's something cultural. There's a cultural difference that's real. That's real there. And I think Francis too. You know, Francis sometimes, um, you know, is 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 patient. And he's not saying a lot. And sometimes all of a sudden, out with something. It's just like, well, didn't you think of before saying that? It's like, well, sometimes no. You know, sometimes I'm going to say what I need to say, and if there's consequences, you know, he'll apologize and he'll make amends. But, but um, yeah, there's an honesty there, which is very direct sometimes, which is sometimes, especially for Argentina, is very typical. Other other areas of directness, to be brief, social inequality. We hear about this in every country in the world, but I think it's true here. Is that when I was in Colombia and when I've been to um, Mexico, it was the same. I, I heard this word. All the time it was called desarrollo, desarrollo, desarrollo. It was like the word development all the time. It was like, I don't hear that word a lot in English. It's because we kind of just forget that there are countries all around the world, not just Latin America, all around the world, which are still very much in the process of developing. I mean, did you guys know, I, I once saw cars being sold really cheaply in Colombia. Like, why don't we just come down here? It's Ford. It's the same company. Paul Francis rides in Ford Focus. Everyone in the New York Times was writing about it. Oh my gosh, he rides in Ford Focus. Now, let me say, you know, why don't we buy a car and just drive it to America? It's cheaper. So, well, you can't. Well, why can't you? Because roads can't cross the jungle of Panama. Like, roads don't connect. So, well, don't, don't roads go everywhere? 
It's like since Eisenhower in the United States, roads go everywhere. Purposely or contingently during the Cold War, so we have highways wide enough to land planes in emergency situations. All I'm saying, you can go to the rural places of Wyoming and we have highways out there and you can't drive from Colombia to Costa Rica because in the middle there is the Panamanian jungle and there are no roads. You also can't drive directly from Colombia to Brazil because there's something in the middle called the Amazon. We're going to talk about the Amazon. Great. I'm just saying that social inequality, when Francis speaks a lot about the marginalized, I mean, he's coming from a culture where this is still very much in progress. It's not just saying, well, we have a whole welfare system and some people in inner city are unfortunate, this and that, da 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 da, da. It's like, I mean, there, there's real poverty, there's real issues of starvation, something we're not entirely up close to that we can quickly write off. And He's a, now, here, here's the next question. I mean, the grand question. Actually, I have a fun thing before that. Um, presidents in jail. That's the title I have here. This is fascinating. All right, so like, so like last year, you know, like the Peruvian president and his wife were thrown into jail. You guys know that? Didn't know that. All right. 2011, then the successing president, uh, successive in 2015 of Guatemala, both presidents successfully thrown in jail. One was thrown in jail. You guys knew that? You can look this up actually on, on, on Wikipedia. It's called List List of Heads of Regimes Who Were Later Imprisoned. That's not in any way to insult Guatemala. That's not in any way to insult. There's an honesty there. I'm not saying we should go ahead and throw American presidents in jail. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm just saying that we have never had an American president ever imprisoned for any reason. The worst is they'll be impeached. It's like, oh my gosh, impeachment would be a public shame. There are people who year by year around the world, Middle East, Africa, all different countries, who are thrown in jail. Taking on the now, some of that could be instability with still developing governments. Some of that too is honesty. They say, if somebody's corrupt and we found out, we're not going to do any cover-ups, you know? We have elaborate monetarily-based cover-ups in developed countries in the way we don't have more honest ones sometimes. You know, they say if you're corrupt, you're going to jail, even if you're president. Just say, I mean, I'm not talking about this president, past president Obama, no, but I'm saying theoretically in our history, we don't have a history of that at all, not once. And it's something very common because of that open societal honesty, I think, in some way. Um, regarding Latin American politics, there's a, there's a woman from Argentina named Rita de Grandis. She especially talks, she's a professor, and she talks about caudillismo. Caudillismo is, is, is something that, especially in South American countries, um, especially for in Argentina, she was also commenting on Chile and Uruguay, that there is, and it's the same thing too with Colombia, I've been there as well, there, there's a strong love of a strong charismatic leader. It's a little bit of a weakness to say we really love charismatic leaders. At the same time, there's this real strong influence of wanting to imitate American and European democracies, which came out of this soil, which we stand today, and especially um, French Revolution, and especially the revolution of the 1830s and 40s. I mean, democracy as such is something that we're, they're tr Latin America is trying to implement democracy, and they are, um, but there's still a strong turn towards charismatic leaders, sometimes which leads to instability, because leaders compete much more so that I think we're used to here, and that still creates more inequality than we're used to. So it's something just taken seriously, but it doesn't mean we make the big shift, because people say, what about liberation theology? Because liberation theology had its flourishing, and now in most countries it really um, has returned more towards the center of practicing the faculty. What about Pope Francis, the liberation theologian? Actually, Pope Francis, when the Jesuits split on this, he was provincial at the time, and he took the side against liberation theology, and a wrong version of liberation theology, a wrong version being 
raising arms and using violence in the name of social inequality in the name of the gospel. Or something extreme as putting, putting social justice before the Eucharist, before the creed, before prayer, etc. There are wrong versions, there are much more moderate versions. But basically, he was seen as a radical conservative to go against his fellow Jesuits and to say, you're opposing us who want to get more into these helping the poor rather than continuing to educate the rich and the elite. And he tried to play a middle ground, and it was very tough. And now it's seen, especially after he was exiled, it was seen that now he has this whole love for the poor and this and that. And you said, well, is it liberation theology? Is it moderate liberation theology? Is actually a term being thrown around by Argentinian and larger South American Jesuit communities, which is called Argentine theology. It's not liberation theology, it's Argentine theology. What is it? It's actually a very beautiful, simple definition. It's that after there have been a series of dictatorships, after there have been civil wars, it's a little more moderate, we say, we've learned that there has to be a people-first sort of focus. It doesn't mean before Christ, it's just saying there has to be a real strong focus on the actual people, on the laity, on, 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 the, on the poor, on, on anybody, you know? And you see that among Francis, he has that desire. But at the same time, as Pope Francis is going down, and wanting to, to be among the people. At the same time, he's also preaching about the devil openly and these really traditional things. You know, he's going to his first day of the papacy, going to lay flowers before the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because Argentinian theology is a combination of still some very strong traditional Catholic elements. And at the same time, there's new emphasis on the laity, which is quite moderate, actually, compared to other spurious versions we've had over the last 50 years. Finally, family. Um, geographically, as a continent, basically South America and Central America and Mexico, I mean, I remember f th th there is a geographic element where, where, with the exception of Brazil and a few smaller countries, when you have the same language, um, there's a strong and good family identity. I had actually, I had had a bad weekend once in San Francisco. So, what happened there? I had gone to visit some friends and also to visit the Dominicans and nothing against the West Coast Dominicans because I have a lot of good friends. But when I was in San Francisco, this was 10 years ago, I just felt for some reason um, very, very far from home. I said, God, I don't know a lot of people here. I feel so far from home. And then I said to the other brother I was with when we went to Columbia for the summer, I said, I feel farther from home than San Francisco. And actually, we weren't. Columbia is closer to, you know, to D.C. than San Francisco, by the way. It's straight south. It's actually very close. Um, but I felt that way because it was very much is its own part of the world with something to offer, with a beautiful life, but at the same time, something something that's very much its own. Um, I remember this, too, even just with different cultural conversations. Take Laudato Si, the, the uh, encyclical environment. I had read a lot online that was commented by all kinds of people from the left and the right in the U.S. on Laudato Si about, oh, he's, his views on petroleum and fossil fuels are ridiculous and we can't ever go over green and, and it, he's, he's being too Franciscan, he's, he's leaning too far left, this and that. There was one word that I did not hear in a single article or conversation in the United States of America. And that word I heard in every other single conversation that I had with Latino friends. And the word was the Amazon. It was like, it was just assumed that he's... We all have the Amazon, especially South Americans. You, you, you have this in mind, not only as a place to be protected, but as a place of grave exploitation for the last 50 years, oftentimes European and American countries. There's, 
there, there's some beef about this. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about Argentinian beef. I'm talking about emotional beef. You know? And somewhat rightly so. It's like, there's some beef about how other countries have come in and resourced out the Amazon. And everyone's thinking in that cultural conversation in that corner of the world that obviously this is like his motivation for writing. And that's never mentioned in the United States of America in any circle I wanted to. And then guess what? Pope Francis announces, wait for it, he announces next year we're going to have a synod on the youth. And then the year after we're going to have a, a, a synod on the meeting of Pan-Amazonian region of bishops. So we're going to do, we're going to do synod on the family, year of mercy, um, the youth, that's all really universal. What's the fourth thing? Well, big priority is the Amazon. Just saying. It's totally different cultural conversations. I read the news um, here, you know, uh, on, on, on our regular sites. And I also go to El Pais, which is the Spanish website. And from there, you can branch out into other countries. And it's funny, too, I was even looking in the last month at how Pope Francis has shown up in the news. And even here, like Al Pai said things I had never seen in American media. You know, it's basically saying that he mentioned the Amazon again when he was in Peru. He especially talked against Peruvian corruption. There's been a lot of to do about his appointment of two new bishops in Mexico City and then also in Oaxaca, which has been really hurt by clerical abuse, and he's putting a new bishop in there. Just a lot of conversation about that area of the world. It's like, wait, does it surprise us that they have conversations about their area of the world and we might maybe have conversations about ours. See, I think, I'm not saying that the United States has, we have, you know, a bad view of things. I just think there's a little element where we think our world is world news. And um, it sort of is, you know. It's also sort of through our lens. We have to be limited to admit that. I had a professor at the House of Studies who taught us Old Testament. He's from Baghdad, Iraq, originally. He reads the news every day in Arabic. He was saying the things we hear about um, from Virginia is so different. He was saying the amount of people with, 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 with Islam in conflict with itself. He was saying that the amount of fellow Muslims who are killed by Muslims is in the daily Arabic papers. And so such a little percentage of that makes its way. He reads it every day. He was shocked when he came to the United States to think, they're not reporting any of this. I read it every day. It's like, well, we, it's, it's not that we're doing something wrong. It's that we, like all people, also kind of maybe live in our own world. Even if you go to Europe, they're very. we think we're close to Europe, and then they're very different opinions in France. And England, if you read The Economist, The Economist gives a very different view of America than Americans have themselves, in an economical and even in a political process. I'm just saying that every nation, every region of the globe, we might all happen to be a little bit more limited than we pretend, and it's worth, it's worth remembering a tiny bit. Um, I'll just say this in the last part, too, is that with church patriarchy, uh, there was an older priest who spent many, many years in Mexico, who I was talking to. And he said, he said, well, sure, there's Latino culture, and then there's a culture to each country. There's also an ecclesial church culture in Latin America. He'd been around many countries. He said, especially among bishops. I was like, huh, what are you talking about? This is his opinion. This isn't doctrine or dogma or anything. He was saying that he had felt that in, 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 the, in the Episcopal culture of bishops, that especially, Brendan, how much time we got? 15 minutes? You got 10 more minutes to talk. I have 10 more minutes to talk? Yeah, oh my gosh, are you serious about that? <laughs> and then we're doing Q&A. Yeah. So I'll do three more minutes of a longer Q&A? That's fine. Nice. Thank you for your assistance. <laughs> you do you, like everybody. Um, so he had just said, he said, of the many, many, many Latin American bishops I've known, he goes, many of them compared 
to the bishop I've known the United States. He goes, many of them are are, ex- are extremely holy men. He goes, there's some devils. He goes, there's either angels or angels or devils. I was like, ooh, I don't, I'm not coming. I'm passing on whatever. I, I can't verify that myself at all. Um, he says, there's real corruption. It's not the majority. And then there's real saintliness. Um, he said that bishops in particular um, have a very decisive paternal mentality of, I'm going to listen, but I'm, I'm, I'm really going to be the one making the decision here. And you, you, you see that too. I mean, Francis even said in his first interview after uh, the papacy that he had felt when he was Jesuit provincial that he was too decisive. And he said, I made hundreds of errors and I've learned to try and create conversation. And yet Benedict Benedict XVI, in the final interview he's given in full to Peter Sewall in that little book put out by Ignatius Press called The Last, what is it called? The Last Conversation? I don't even think I ever, The Last Testament, excuse me. He asked Benedict, what's your opinion of Francis? Like, what did you think before you think now? And Benedict basically said, um, well, before I knew him really only to be like a very decisive man. You know, that's who Francis is. You know, it's very much ingrained in those structures. He's learned to listen and create dialogue a lot more, but he's still a decisive, you know, he just, somebody say, I'm going to wake up and do this today, you know. Benedict then said that later he was at least pleased to see that he's also made a great humility. He hadn't seen it on his ad limited visits because he had visited with him very briefly. But he'd seen the real humility there. Um, so, and then the, the last thing is pretty sad. He said a lot of Latin American bishops are bowls in china shops. I mean, they, they like to wreck around a little bit. They like to stir the oven. It's just a thing. I don't understand it. Um, last thing to be said, too, is this. So there is a comfortability with complexity and not resolving absolutely everything. There is a, on, an honesty, which maybe other people disagree with you, but you're going you're gonna to say what you think strongly. And then finally, there's a strong family, not just family as an area of the globe, not just family with the own language, but family too, even within the church, is a strong paternal strain, Latin American bishops in particular. And finally, I just want to zoom in on Argentina. What about Argentina in particular, how they handle Pope Francis? I mean, I have two friends down there, and they basically said that they have to go outside and read newspapers outside of Argentina to get a read on Francis, because the newspapers in Argentina are at a constant battle, reading his every single move, to say, is he on the side of the current government or the government that was overthrown previously? It's a constant back and forth. That's all they're stuck on, you know? There's own little pockets and worlds of, of journalism, and I guess that's what's happening in Buenos Aires. Um, finally, there's two, is that I have a friend who's, who's a catechist and a very devout Catholic in Buenos Aires, and she just said something that people don't understand is that Argentina, in comparison to a lot of Latin America, in particular, is having lots of struggles in vocations. They've had a lot of men leave, and not a lot of men are coming back. There's an increasing, much more just like Europe in the United States, there is an increasing secularization. Um, like e- e- Even so, the, the, the Kirchners, you know, they, they, they legalized abortion in a limited way. An abortion, while Francis was recently bishop in Buenos Aires, and he railed against this, but this, this is a growing secularization. And she's, She's saying there's a strong sentiment, in, in at least in Buenos Aires and the surrounding area, that the church is seen as something of the old guard of colonialism, and it's something people want to shake, shake away eventually, because it's not in contact with the real lives of actual people. It's a strong sense among Argentinians right now that the church needs to do everything they can 
to get back in touch with your common everyday people. It's not just a spirituality somebody reads in books. This is the Argentinian experience as Catholics, devout Catholics, among a country where there's less and less devout Catholics. And they're trying to find a way. So it's not just Francis looking out at the world. I mean, I'm not saying every decision he's made is perfect. I'm not going to back up every statement he's made. But there's, there, there's a real effort there to say, we're trying to break through some, to try and get people at least in the process of considering to come back to the church because his own country is suffering from that very particularly, even in comparison with all Latin America. I'm going to leave it at that for now. There's much more to be said. Um, questions and answers. Let's go. This will be fun. Anyway. I forgot to say, too, I dedicate this night to Johnny Fisher, my cousin. There you go. Because Johnny Fisher's brothers-in-law, Michael and Daniel Butters, they are sitting here at the table. So basically family, right? Because my cousin is your brother-in-law. That's right. So I dedicate this to him. I'll let him know. And to you. Thank you. Okay. Anyway, we have time. Any thoughts? Yes. Uh, so Pope Francis was in Argentina also a leader of the charismatic renewal, so he's big on that. Uh, I was in Rome. And sometimes with Communion and Liberation. Never officially part. We used to go to meetings, school community. Sorry. So I was in Rome this uh, last summer and uh, he was there at the uh, charismatic uh, fifty year anniversary of the charismatic renewal. So um, he's really really pushes that a lot. Could you talk about How he pushes charismatic renewal, yeah. I, I, I don't know a lot, so I'm very limited in what I could say, but I just know that um, charismatic renewal is very big throughout various countries of Latin America, and I tend to think that Francis is the kind of guy where whatever the people, whatever devotions they're into, he tries to make that because I know he also ties to community liberation, I know he ties to these social justice movements, and I know he also ties to, you know, strong devotion to the Virgin Mary, Teresa of Lisieux, all these devotional stuff. So, I, I, I don't know about this specifically, but it seems to me that if yeah, people in general are into it, he wants to give it a chance, yeah, the Argentinian theological focus. It's a guess. I don't know more specifics. I'm sorry, I'm a limited human being up here, 30 years of age, young, still naive, <laughs> in the process of learning, not learning yet. Yes, in the back. Yeah, so uh, one of the significances also of Francis' uh, uh, election and papacy is that he is also, uh, in a sense, the first pope from what the air, the, uh, the area that's often referred to, uh, especially by theologians, as the global south, meaning, I mean, Latin America, of course, yeah. Africa, and Asia. So, I was wondering if you could maybe comment on that there's been a, a bit of change, that maybe there's been an improvement in Relations bring uh, bring the uh, church to be more in touch with uh, those people, especially since that's where right. So does the election of someone from the global south for the first time ever bring the rest of the world in touch better with that part of the world? Right. I think it's the very beginning. I think there's a little bit of shock involved, but I, I think that's beginning. I don't know. I don't know who will be pope next. I'm, I'm interested in France. I'm, I'm interested in the next like three or four popes. I have no idea what will happen. You know, the church will. You know. How will not prevail against the Catholic Church? I believe in the words of Jesus to the T. But who will the next two popes are? I don't. I don't know. I mean. I mean. I think that's happening. But I think there's also misunderstanding. You know, like 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 even, even take the very controversial which I'll bring up just to be funny of, of Amoris Laetitia. You know, a lot of people talking about Amoris Laetitia, and um, 
I read him Morris Letizia closely, and it's true, chapter 8, there's some vagueness on conscience issues that I, I myself would love clarification on. Um, what Francis, Francis just said this actually, like, yesterday to the Bishop of Malaysia, who just visited him and then gave an interview, saying he actually asked Francis from Malaysia because he's in a Muslim-majority country and he feels persecuted somewhat, and he basically said to Francis, yeah, we talked to him about the Morris Letizia, and Francis gave the classical complexity answer. He goes, he goes, it's true there are concerns, but there's more in the document than just chapter 8. You know, that's true. There's a lot more in the document than just chapter 8, and even those few paragraphs. Something that's very practical and, and beautiful about the real things married couples struggle with, which no other document has touched on before, actually. Um, and I see that, you know, I see a misunderstanding there. Not, not a misunderstanding that we like clarification, those should be mutually enriching to say, here's the complex case of marriage. And it's a pastor approach, not teaching new doctrine. Here's the pastor approach. And some people say, can we get greater clarification? Um, I think those should be mutually enriching. I think the trouble with the clarification, sadly, I actually, I think I printed this out. So Ratzinger said, Ratzinger was head of the CDF, and Donum Veritatis was a, was a document put out in 1990. It was to the bishops and theologians of the church about their role as theologians. And this is from paragraph 30. I find this fascinating. This is Ratzinger. If despite a loyal effort on the theologian's part, difficulties persist between the church and that theologian, and he thinks he's... The theologian has the duty to make known to the magisterial authorities the problems raised by the teaching of the magisterium. His objections contribute to real progress, a stimulus to the magisterium to propose the teaching of the church in greater depth, clearer arguments. But he says like this, key, in cases like these, the theologian should avoid ever turning to the mass media, but have recourse to responsible authority, for it is not by seeking to exert the pressure of public opinion that one contributes to the clarification of doctrinal issues and render service to the truth. I find that fascinating. Ratzinger is saying, if, 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 if people are upset with the Pope, because I think there's a misunderstanding there, like, like, and I think he should clarify. The last thing Ratzinger says is don't turn to the mass media, because then you're, you're going for public opinion on your side versus the Pope. It creates division, actually. And actually, it kind of stalls the process. I would rather bishop, I don't know what kind of 30 year old, I would rather bishop, da, 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 whatever. You know. But it's like, it's like Jesus says, knock and the door shall be answered. I mean, it's just, do you give a Pope a three month window to respond? He doesn't have a lot on his plate. Or do you say, I'm going to, for seven years, keep sending the same thing, so we still ask, we still ask. Is there patience there? Is there saying, well, time is up. Um, we're going to turn to the mass media. To, to me, um, it's, not that, it's not that the instinct's wrong. It's not the end that's wrong. It's the means. To say, do, do we as Catholics turn to media more than we turn to patience, dialogue, our real pastors, real bishops, etc.? I think we're addicted to media, so yeah, I think we do, yes. Christy, my college friend, what's up? Well, you know, everything I've said, there has to be an accept in that statement. Well, I would love more on where to go. So how, if we hear things, where we want to know, what is Pope Francis doing? What, like, how can we just know more of how to, to follow him and to see him? To, to see Francis. Yeah. Well, it's always Google Translate. If you don't speak Spanish, you know, I mean... It's a few clicks away. I'm serious, actually. <laughs> if, you want to diversify, if you want to diversify a little bit in your media dimension, read around, read, even read European newspapers, which are different than American, which are different than South American. Um, secondly, um, I think Christian life is just something to be lived day by day. So I think 
what the Pope is saying in doing matters, and I think what writers say, again, that, it's not to say that that doesn't matter, but, um, you know, people always make the argument, well, if, if, if any little gesture is made, how is this going to scandalize people in the parish level? I've been working in the parish level for three years, and parishes are a strong culture of their own. I mean, you get in there, it's hard to change anything. You know, I mean, it's like, we act like, you know, everybody's following the Pope, and actually not everybody is. Everybody's just kind of really stuck in their own lives, and some people come to church sometimes, and some come all the time, and some people have strong opinions, and don't care. And I look at that, and I think, there's something beautiful that, it's something beautiful to pay attention to the universal church, and to get a little more universal in your reading of the universal church. Something better about being local as well. There's a huge debate between Walter Casper, who now has said other things about communion in Germany, which is wrong. But Walter Casper way back debated Cardinal Ratzinger. They had this whole debate between universal and local church. And it wasn't eventually resolved. It wasn't like one of them won. Just they have different emphases. I mean, I, would, I look at myself and it's like, what would I like to do more of? I'd like to understand the universal church more. I would also not like to be lazy in visiting some of the parishioners in their apartments. The parishioners that are homebound, you know? Um, I would like to um, pray more in my life. I don't pray, I'm a religious, but I, I, I could pray more. I mean, there's more Catholic life right here. I know I need to do that's what Lent is for, you know? My Lent commitment is pray more and go to bed at 10.30 every night. It's not Lent, so I'm staying up late tonight. Um, it's true. I'm going to go to 10.30 during Lent. If you ever catch me, you know my commitment now. I know it's a publicly. Um, but I do think the solution has to be local. It has to do with your life, your friends, your prayer, your service, your, your work, working with kids. Was it kindergarten? Exactly. That's ministry right there. The church is in the kindergarten, you know what I mean? Invest there. But at the same time, the more widely we read about the wide matters instead of just reading one or two sources about huge universal matters. Oh, right, yes. Um, being from Ecuador, I think one of the distinct developments of the policies in Latin America is that there's this um, celebration of popular piety, that everyone goes to like, the processions for Holy Week or for the big parties for a baptism. But it's not very much of a profound, like, mature faith. There's still like, things that are borderline superstition. So, how do you think that also Yeah. And then it's true, we, we haven't taken around this huge Good Friday procession, you know. It's a huge, we have a huge Guadalupe procession, these popular piety elements. And then how do you make sure there's actual deeper faith and catechesis? Um, it's a huge issue, um, especially in the 20th century. Because I, 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 I think the thing with Latin America as a whole, and which makes it so difficult. There's a, there's a tension there between coming from a much more long-founded tradition of life than the United States. The United States is younger, much younger than Latin America. And A, it's, it's also kind of developed in a quick course. I mean, really quick in development. Latin America coming from a very older culture with all these popular piety elements, etc., a slower pace of life, family structures. And, 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 and then modernity through media in the last 50 years, I mean... Has, has crashed. I mean, it, it's funny to me how and you adopt these things. I mean, you still have. I, I, I you know, I, I think it's funny how a lot of Latin American, like uh, cumbia artists and music artists, and even like Salvadorian, like one of the most famous Salvadoran artists is uh, bachata. Anybody here listen to bachata music? No, a little bachata. There you go. So like, so like the guy's name is Prince Royce. You know, it's like all these English names: Daddy Yankee, Prince Royce, or Daddy Yankee from Puerto Rican, but. Um, so there's, there's this funny, it's imitating a music sound is taking on these names, there's strong 
influences that are in conflict with this traditional thing. I mean, it's, I don't have an answer, well, what's the plan? Um, I think that's almost a more complex problem than, than a kid from you know, family of five generations in Massachusetts. Well, Massachusetts kind of tough these days too. It's hard to get religion up there. Yet church, Jesus is challenging everywhere. You know I mean? like wherever you go on planet Earth, and it's not just the 20th, 20th century. I'm not saying the 20th century doesn't present new challenges, but I'm hesitant to say, oh, it's the worst and most challenging ever. I mean, we've never dealt with the Black Plague. Dominican friars, we're up to 100,000 friars in our first few generations. We got knocked down to something like 12,000. Imagine your Dominican order, in a couple of years, goes from 100,000 to 12,000. It's going to mess with your head a little bit if you're one of the remaining 12,000. Even in this country, in Memphis, Tennessee, Dominicans served and were completely exterminated by yellow fever in Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, we have some heroic men that stuck it out all the way. There, there are all kinds of experiences, whether it's the temptation of media and secularism, whether it's mass... I mean, there's these plagues I mentioned. I mean, there's no time to say, oh, Catholicism was easy. It was a given, you know? Because, gosh, you fast-forward, or you rewind to the Middle Ages, and, I mean, you didn't have printing presses. You, you People are familiar with the stories, but... Uh, he couldn't, I, I have the pleasure of sitting out in my room and just reading the Bible for my personal prayer. If I was a kid growing up in, I don't know, let me pick Leon, France, you know, year 1000, not happening. Maybe I'd go to some Sunday school classes with monks because the Benedictines were riding strong back then. But um, I don't think Catholicism was ever easy without tensions, without room for improvement. Maybe I'm a pessimist. I'm actually a positive guy. Um, Anybody else? Yes? What could or should Francis and the church be doing to, I guess, promote or push democracy in South In where? Latin America. So, to better democracy, let's go back to John Paul II. You know what I mean? Um, John Paul II wrote, what, four people? In, no, three encyclicals on society. He did say that democracy is the most efficient at getting the needs of human life to actual people. But the church has never had, and there's a whole debate about this here. Um, so I'm not sure that the church at large is an official position on democracy. Um, I prefer democracy. I was raised with it, you know. In democracy, you also see the pitfalls of it is it can become a popularity contest, you know. If every person has a vote, if every voice matters, hey, that's a beautiful teaching. But then all of a sudden, politics becomes like winning everybody's attention and it turns into an entertainment game. I'm not just in democracy, I mean, we're living in it, you know what I mean? Um, and that ours has a foundation. See, that's the trouble is that we, we have a foundation in, well, it's a republic technically, but um, how do you then not only hear, you know, the United States makes the same thing with the Middle East. How do we try and propose democracy and perhaps instill democracy in other areas that have centuries and centuries and centuries without. I'm a 30-year-old brother living in Washington, D.C. I don't know. I'm sorry. I think democracy is a good form of government, but I, I don't think it's sterling and spotless. I don't think it's like perfect. I think they're gross extremes. You know, communism isn't going to work because we believe in original sin. I mean... Um, democracy in Argentina, for instance, has only come along after you had a military dictatorship from 1976, to, no, 67 to 63, 
and then yes, and somebody changes the power. I, I wish I knew a better answer. It's a problem of stability, you know. And I think I think it's deeply mysterious how there are deeply un, deep instability in some places. Some, that's the norm for some people. Ooh, spooky to think about. I don't have a great answer. Sorry. But I don't think we think about that very much. We assume things are generally stable. Yeah. How much time we have? Be honest with me, Brendan. Don't lie. We're there. We're there? Yeah. Are you need a quick prayer? Can we do this? Alright. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, you know every element of our lives. You know where we have come from and our families. You know uh, all of our present affairs. And you alone know what will happen in our own lives and in the life of the world and in the life of the universal holy Catholic apostolic church. Uh, we just pray that you help each of our hearts this Lent to focus on you, Jesus Christ, and to focus on our neighbor. That beginning there, um, you will lead us and guide us to be better Catholics. We pray for Christian brothers and sisters all around the world that in each place as the church celebrates Lent and leads to Easter, your grace will work in every area of the world in a deeper, greater, concrete way. We ask this in Jesus' name. We pray especially to the Virgin Mary who helps us in all of our affairs. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thee, O Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, the most holy mother of God. Wait, what, did I switch Mary and Bruce? Yeah. Holy cow! Yeah. Yeah. Let's try that again. I'm a bad Catholic. <laughs> it's something about being in front of people. We totally like that. I'm sorry. One more time. Hail Mary, full of grace. <laughs> blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I got that one right. Sign of the cross. <laughs> Paul the Great. So join us next month. Have a great night, guys. Thank you.